Before I pray this morning, let me say a word of appreciation to you for your prayers for me after my ordeal last Saturday. Still not sure what transpired. There's a debate in my family over what transpired. I say one thing, they say another thing. We don't know who's right because, I don't know, we just don't know who's right. I guess when I go and uh, if I get further checked up, then maybe we'll find out who's right. But I know one thing, I do not want to go through that experience again. And may the Lord be good and gracious in not allowing it to happen again. But I do appreciate your prayers, appreciate the cards. Um, I think it was Lawanda Sunday School class made me a card. Each one of you little children, I thank you for what you had to say and your pictures that you drew me. It's always a delight for your pastor to receive things such as that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you with thankful hearts, <clears throat> for we know that you are the one that has allowed us the privilege to gather on this day, the Lord's day, to worship you in truth and spirit. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would be pleased to meet with us this day, for we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes and works in our midst to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray, Father, that you would bring glory and honor to yourself through all that has taken place. We thank you, Father, that you are a God that is gracious and merciful, who has sent his only begotten Son into this world to save sinners from their sins. And Father, as we meditate upon what Christ did to accomplish our salvation, we pray that we may have greater understanding of these truths, which would move us to worship you more effectively and more pleasing in your sight. We do pray, Father, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed today, that many would come into your kingdom. We thank you for the wonderful truth that your people will be saved from their sins. And we know that that salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. So we pray that your spirit would take the gospel and drive it in the hearts of those who are lost so that they might become children of God to love you and to worship you. We pray, Father, for those who are not able to be with us. We pray that you would work in their lives and meet the needs that they have in their lives so that they might be able to return. We continue to pray, Father, that you would bring an end to this virus so those who are unable to join us would be able to join us without any fear of contact from it. We pray, Father, that those who are sick and even have this virus, that you would be pleased to strengthen and heal their bodies. We thank you, Father, that you are a gracious and merciful God, and we know that all healings comes from your hand. We pray also, Father, that you would be with those who are away due to travel or some other reason. We pray that you'd bring them back to us quickly. We pray for our nation, Father, that you would be merciful and gracious and bring about an awakening in our day. Turn us back to the truth that this nation was founded upon and restore the truth in our legislation and overturn the horrible sins that we as a nation have committed in making laws that are unjust laws, laws that are directly contrary to your word. Bring about an awakening for your glory and honor. 
And we pray all of these things, Father, in our Lord, Savior, Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 15, and we will pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Mark chapter 15. Begin reading with verse 15. Mark 15, beginning with verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus afterwards he, after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. It appears that most Christians do not fully comprehend the entire cost of our salvation. They may say, well, Jesus died on the cross. And that's about the depth of most Christians, sad to say. They completely ignore all that Christ accomplished before he went to the cross which, of course, is called the active obedience of Christ. Most Christians, if you ask them, do you understand the active and the passive obedience of Christ, would look at you with an unusual stare, not knowing what you were talking about. The active obedience of Christ, we have to understand, is just as important as the passive obedience of Christ. Both the active and passive obedience of Christ involves our salvation. We have to understand that Jesus Christ had to satisfy the law. He had to keep the law in every area because we could not keep the law. As sinners, we could not obey. As sinners, we could not fulfill the demands of the law. So therefore, we had to have someone come to fulfill the demands of the law. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every single demand without exception. He kept the Ten Commandments, perfectly. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He was perfect in every single way. If you study the Gospels, you cannot find a single flaw in his life because there are no flaws in the life of Christ. He was born to die. He was born to be faithful in keeping that which we could not keep. No one can be compared to him. No one can even come close to being compared to him. Some of you may have seen the illustration that R.C. Sproul used a number of years ago when he put uh, an individual on this side. I can't remember the individual. I do remember the one on this side, Steve Lawson. And he said, this individual represents... Hitler, and Steve Lawson represents Christ. 
And he said, now where would you put Paul in between them as far as perfection is concerned? Where would you put him? And so he gives them opportunity to kind of guess, would he be here, here, here on the two extremes? And Sproul said, well, you would put Paul right here. And he puts him right next to Hitler. He said, now, if Paul, being the greatest saint of all, is put right there by Hitler, then where would you be put? In other words, he was emphasizing that no one comes close to the perfection of Jesus Christ, that we all gravitate more toward Hitler than we would toward Christ as far as our own self-righteousness. We do not have any self-righteousness. As the scripture teaches us, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Jesus Christ was holy, undefiled, harmless, separated from sinners. He was perfect. For he was God, and God is perfect, and there is no sin in him. Now, in one sense, that's almost difficult, too difficult for us to comprehend. We cannot comprehend totally purity, perfection. One day, we will experience it when we're at heaven, but here on this side of heaven, it's something that we continue to meditate upon and continue to long for. Therefore, when Jesus Christ comes to this particular stage of his life here in Mark chapter 15, we see that he willingly lays down his life as a sacrifice. All that Jesus Christ did for man's salvation is so vast that we could spend the rest of our life, every single moment of our life, meditating upon it, and we still could not completely comprehend all that Christ did. It's kind of like the song that you've heard sung. I think it was George Beverly Shea. He used to sing it at Billy Graham Crusades, The Love of God. The love of God is greater farther than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches the lowest hell. The guilty pair bows down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from their sin. O oh, love of God, which pure, rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and ever angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the sky the parchment made, were every stalk of earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Do you see what the writer of this song is saying? That we cannot comprehend all of it. We could not begin to comprehend all of it because God's salvation is so great. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're not trying to comprehend all of it. That's what we're doing today. We are simply going to God's Word and trying to learn more of what God says about this great salvation. It's something that we come Sunday after Sunday to do. And it never grows old. If it grows old to you, something's wrong. I mean, if you do not light in, delight in these truths, something is wrong with your heart, because your heart should long to come and worship the living God. Come and learn more of what Christ has accomplished for us. 
Jeff Thomas, and again, by way of announcement, Jeff Thomas will be with us, Lord willing, and pray that he will be able to come into the country because of the uh, virus. Uh, there are some restrictions. Hopefully by January they will not be there to where it would hinder him. But Jeff Thomas says, When we stand before the cross, we are like a little child standing on the shore of a vast ocean who picks up one little pebble and he stares at that pebble. We simply cannot comprehend what he did for us, what he has saved us from, what he has saved us to, the debt we owe to God, the mighty maker, for dying for man's sin. We simply can't comprehend it totally. Now, we do grasp it to a certain extent. You have to grasp it to a certain extent to be able to be saved. But it's so amazing that it's beyond our total comprehension. And what's so amazing about it is that Christ sacrificed his life for sinners. I mean, to die for a good person would be one thing, but we're talking about to die for sinners whom he fervently loved. And everything he experienced was because he loved us and gave himself for us, as Paul says in Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for who? The ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for you and me. Let that sink in. Think about that. All that are saved need to understand that no one is good. I don't care what someone may say to some of our little children. Oh, you sat so good in church. Remember, I've shared that before about my own testimony. I used to love to hear my grandmother tell me after church, Thomas, you did so good today. All that did was build pride up in me, and I was going to be determined to even be better the next Sunday as far as sitting still and being quiet. Now, of course, I didn't do much thinking about the sermon. I thought about how good I was being quiet. I didn't listen much to the preacher. I don't remember much the preacher said, but I sure do remember my grandmother telling me how good I was for sitting there so still and sweet. And I don't care how still and sweet you sit, and how sweet somebody may come up to you and say something to you like that. You're a sinner. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you're ungodly, sinful, under the wrath of God, deserving death, as the Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what each and every one of us deserved, to be dead in our sin, to be under the judgment of God. But Jesus Christ, did that which we could not do. He was perfect. He was the perfect child. He sat there still and listened to what was being taught. And he understood more than those that were teaching it. And he was perfect in every way. And then he died in our place. As we see in 1 Peter, Peter writes and says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. So we see that Christ willingly suffered for sins, sinners, so that they might have everlasting life. And we must also understand that Jesus Christ suffered to fulfill all 
of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. He fully understood how he was going to be treated before he went to Jerusalem. It's very clear. He mentions that quite often. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And then in chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And then the Gospel of Mark, we looked at this in chapter 10 when we were there a number of months ago in verse 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will be raised again. So we see that Jesus clearly taught his disciples, at least a year before this happened, that he had to go to Jerusalem and all that was going to happen to him there in Jerusalem. Now, of course, they didn't fully grasp it and understand it until Pentecost. And we see that the Spirit brought all of the things back to their minds so that they could write the Gospels. But as they were going through it, they did not understand it. And we see that very clearly. And we'll see it even more clearly as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, how they did not grasp it until later. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, it should cause us to have a greater appreciation of Jesus' willingness to suffer on our behalf before he went to the cross, before the crucifixion, so that we might be saved from our sins and receive his righteousness, which he earned for us. Now, first of all, why did Pilate have... Jesus flogged. Again, we have to remember, you have to go to all four Gospels to be able to get the full picture of what's transpiring here in the trials and in the suffering of Jesus because Mark does not give us the full picture. Matter of fact, if you only look at Mark's account, you would think that immediately he's flogged and then immediately he's crucified. So therefore, if you go to the Gospel of John, as we have done many times, you see that it wasn't just one uninterrupted event as Mark seems to present it to us, but we see in John's Gospel, in John chapter 19, that it was different from that. Now again, it's not that it's contradicting one another, it's just that Mark does not emphasize what John emphasizes, and John gives us a clear picture. But in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on a robe of purple. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I bring you, him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown and of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, and they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him, Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, and find no fault in him. 
So we see in John much clearer picture of what takes place. Matter of fact, not until verse 16 do we see at that point that he is delivered to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Now, why do I say this? Well, what we need to understand is that we have here, first of all, Pilate having Jesus flogged, and then later Jesus is flogged again. The first time that Pilate has Jesus flogged, he is flogged with a milder flogging. And we'll see a little bit later how that difference from the flogging that he received before he was crucified. But he believed, Pilate believed, that when they saw that Jesus had been flogged, he thought that the people would have mercy on him. He thought that they would release him. It was as if Pilate was saying, look now at your victim. He, he's been beaten. Don't you think he's endured enough? Will you withdraw your demands to have him crucified. Please rethink your decision. Look at it. I mean, the man has done nothing wrong. How many times Pilate has said that? Six times he said that he is innocent, done nothing wrong. So therefore, Pilate makes his last appeal to them, and he has Jesus brought before them so that they could look upon his body and see that he had been flogged, see that he had been punished for whatever they thought he might have needed to be punished for and that they would have pity on him and conclude that he had suffered enough so therefore release him but we see how depraved sinful man can be we know how depraved sinful man can be because we clearly see what Paul says about sinful man in Romans chapter 3 a very familiar passage to us when he speaks about the depravity of man there in chapter 3, beginning there in verse 10, he says, Of man there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. There is none who seek after God. They have all gone their own way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who do good. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are, have practiced deceit. Poison is asked upon their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they do not, uh, have not known. Therefore, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that's man and his depravity. And that's how these particular people were on that given day. They had no sympathy. They had no pity toward Jesus. And man left to himself will continue to do unimaginable things to another human being. If you've never read the book of the martyrs, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the books of martyrs and just see what has happened to Christians throughout history. How Christians have been treated. Christians who have been sawed in half, who have been ripped apart, crucified, filleted, stoned, beheaded, burned, thrown to the lions and other animals. And the crowds would stand and cheer for others to be treated the same way. They wanted blood to be shed, just as Roman tells us, the shedding of the blood of others. Sinful human beings gravitate 
toward evil left to themselves. That's one reason why the most popular video games today on the internet are those that give you the opportunity to kill a person in some bizarre way. People gravitate toward that. It shows how sinful they are. Man's heart becomes so callous toward violence and murdering, even to where people will post a murder on social media today. Don't think that we are free in our society from such evil. It floods our nation and only by the grace of God we have been set free from such behavior. Now, those gathered on this early morning, remember it's morning time now, Jesus has been awake all night and now he continues to suffer. They did not show any pity or mercy toward Jesus, but they continued to desire more blood, and therefore they cry, crucify him, crucify him. Second, to grasp his suffering before the cross, I want us to think again about the nature of this flogging. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Jesus was flogged twice. There's actually three different floggings that occurred in that particular day that were used by the Romans. Uh, there was what we would call the minor flogging, and then there was a more brutal flogging, and then there was the inhumane flogging. Now, the first flogging was not the inhumane flogging that Jesus received. And, of course, the Jews were not satisfied. They were not pleased as far as what was done to Jesus. They wanted more to be done to him. They wanted him to be crucified. They would not release him even after he had been flogged by Pilate. Now, this second flogging that Jesus received constituted a terrible suffering. Matter of fact, Rome had set it as a proper punishment for lawbreakers. And they saw it as a punishment that was so gruesome that most Roman citizens were immune from it. Only in extreme cases would they allow a Roman citizen to be flogged in this manner. Now the gospel writers don't go into great detail about this flogging. So we have to learn about this flogging from historical writers. One of them casts Schuyler says, according to description given in numerous books, the scourging of a person was stripped to his loins and was bound to a post or a pillar in some way so that his back was bent over as he stood with his head bowed before the ground. In that way, the first stroke had to succeed in bringing forth blood. Accordingly, we can easily understand that some description of the scourging which took place, we read that the strokes of the whip sometimes tore the flesh so badly that the human skeleton began to be visible as a result. In order to gravitate the pain even more, barbs and pieces of bones and knots were woven into the scourge and in later periods, during the time of persecution of the Christians, for instance, lead bullets were also fastened to the thrones. We don't know to what extent this particular held truth in the scourging inflicted upon the Savior. Scripture speaks very soberly 
of these things. Now we are told that the soldiers came and took him and bound him. And usually it was two soldiers. And reading what John MacArthur says, he says that Jerome says there was actually six soldiers so that they would take turns beating him because it would wear them out. Now, of course, automatically what comes to our mind is what was pertaining to the Jewish law. The Jewish law is that you would be whipped 39 times, one less than 40. But you've got to remember, this is not the Jews doing the whipping. This is the Romans doing the whipping of Jesus. And only through this scourging, we see that the entire back would appear to be an enormous wound. His bones would be exposed. Most men would actually die from such a beating. And to look upon one beating in this manner was even painful in itself. It should have caused them to cry out, Stop! Don't beat him anymore! Show mercy. I mean, it was utterly repugnant, detestable, abominable. Words cannot actually describe how inhumane this beating was that they put on Jesus. Jeff Thomas again says, I have a feeling that it's improper, even sinful, to look upon Jesus being whipped. I want to turn my eyes away. Would you look upon your own daughter? Or your wife or your son being scourged like this? Of course, the answer would be no. You would turn your head away. But what we must learn is that this is not men beating another human being. But this is men flogging the God-man, the holy, the innocent, the Son of God. As D.A. Carson said, Man's inhumanity to God. They were treating God in this manner, not a mere human being. Jesus Christ should never have been treated with such contempt, such degradation. But heaven does not interfere. Our Heavenly Father does not prevent it. In fact, we are told in the scriptures, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now see, that's what confuses lost man. In other words, they think and they say, wait a minute now, you tell us that God is a God of love? And he allowed his only begotten son to be treated in this manner? And they say, a God of love would never allow such. See, they don't understand God's eternal purposes. The only way that God could have a relationship with sinful man is by this act of allowing His only begotten Son to be bruised, to be condemned, to be crucified so that we might go free. Yes, this took place according to God's decree and we must understand that. And we need to be guarding our thoughts as we meditate upon it. May God help us to rightly understand these things that are recorded in Scripture so that we might learn from them and that we might be amazed at God's amazing grace toward us. I've not seen the movie, The Passion of Christ. 
but I've heard about it, and I personally believe that Mel Gibson went way too far in portraying the beating of Jesus, which he received. It went on and on and on, is what I'm told. One individual told me, he said, I just wish they would have stopped beating him. I mean, we have to understand that it was extremely gory. And the gospel writers do not give us hardly any details about this beating. Of course, in their day, flogging was very common. They understood the flogging of another human being. They knew how horrible it was, so therefore the Bible does not expound upon this horror. But it does stress the majesty, the love, and the willingness of Christ to endure this without any complaining as he fulfills Isaiah 53 like a lamb led to the slaughter and not opening his mouth, not a sound of complaint. Here is the eternal Son of God, the one who in the beginning was with God and was God, enduring this stroke after stroke on his back, and out of his love for his children, bound in darkness, he went through this. And we must understand that the eternal truth of this event, what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in receiving such painful punishment from these particular soldiers so that we might be saved. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. The Halleberg Catechism says that Jesus sustained the anger of God against the sin of his people. During, this whole li during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, there's a sense in which all the suffering of Jesus endured on earth was part of his work of bearing sin. But scripture is clear that the key work of the atonement occurs on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that we are healed by his stripes. And this refers to this flogging that Jesus received. It speaks about the truth, both spiritually and physically being healed. Both flow from the cross. When Jesus Christ returns and he consummates his kingdom, we will have completed our eternal healing, our eternal physical healing. When we leave this earth, we leave these bodies of pain and suffering and enter into eternal bliss. Now we're also, we must also understand that Jesus' suffering was more than shedding blood in the book done by Christ written by Puritan Paul Wall in 1650 he says this all his life was a crucifixion from the cradle to the grave from his birth to his burial I mean have you ever thought about that have you ever thought how much Christ suffered in humbling himself, as Paul talks about there in Ephesians chapter 2? He became man, born of a virgin, raised by a poor carpenter, 
working with his hands, submitting to the will of other men. For 30 years, he submitted to his parents, honoring them, fulfilling all responsibilities that he had there in the home. Throughout his three years of ministry, he endured difficulties. His ministry started with that battle there in the wilderness with Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He went without food and water and he prepared himself to meet the adversary. Then afterwards, he called his disciples and he told them that there would be no place for them to lay their head as far as a home, that their days would be spent in the wilderness, live one day at a time. He was despised by men, treated with disrespect, often lied about. Often he grew weary from such long days of healing literally thousands of individuals, teaching multitudes. He was up before the break of day, spending time with his heavenly father, and he did not go bed till late at night, spending time with his heavenly father. There were no cars, there were no buses, there were no trains. He walked where he went for thousands, hundreds of miles on those hot, dusty roads. No hotels, no rest stops, no restaurants, simply a few shade trees and water wells to where he could sit and get a cool drink of water. John MacArthur shares about this. If you've not read it in the order of worship, I encourage you to read it there in the order of worship. Not now, later on. But he talks about how Jesus suffered, how Jesus being the God-man experienced all these difficulties. He had to deal with the conflict of the devil, the religious leaders, and even his own disciples at times. All the pressures that bared upon him, and he had to resist them, and he prayed to his heavenly Father for strength and for wisdom to deal with all of them. We have seen how he prayed with loud, loud cries of tears there in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was part of his suffering, even to the extent to where he sweat drops of blood. Do you see the suffering of Jesus Christ where he shed more than just blood? His entire life was a sacrifice because he loved and gave himself for us. His life was a journey, a self-sacrificing life. Then let us never underestimate the climax of him laying down his life as the Lamb of God there at Calvary. Third, we see the mocking of Jesus by the soldiers there in verses 16 through 20. They first called others to join in on their fun. They called the whole garrison as we see there in verse 16. Now garrison was up to 600 men. Now I don't know if there were 600 men there or not, but there was a lot of people, in other words, that joined in on this making fun of Christ. You have to remember this was an age of Augustus, of Tiberius, an age when satirism was abounding. Cruel humor was frequent there in the Roman Empire. Violence was a game to them. They mocked Jesus Christ with all of their cruel games that they tried to play upon him. We see that his majesty is attacked. They seek to make him a laughing stock before the crowd that surrounds them. 
And we see that angels must have held their peace, covered their face, and put their fingers in their ears. After they had beaten Christ cruelly, they decided to have a little bit more fun. They used him, we could say, like a rag doll. One reason was due to their hatred for the Jews. The other was their own depravity, as we've already seen. They set up a show to mock him, to mock his kingship. We see that one soldier must have strolled up and, and found some old purple robe, maybe one that he had discarded himself, dirty, faded, even though it was purple and scarlet, it would work to imitate a king's robe, and they put this upon him as an insult of his kingship. And then we see that another soldier must have chopped off a branch of a thorn bush and wove it into a crown, two inches of thorns, and placed it upon his head, the head that is crowned with glory today was crowned with a thorn crown that day. The thorns were not put there simply for torture, but they were put there to mock him, to mock him as the Jews' king. And then they mock him even further by putting a staff in his hand as a scepter, and they began to laugh and they began to act as if he was their king and they began to bow down and they began to say, Hail, king of the Jews. I mean, how hilarious this was for them. They could hardly contain themselves at their laughter. And they quickly became bored with doing that, so therefore they saw that Jesus would not cooperate with their comedy acts, so they gathered around him, they began to act as if he was their king and bow before him, and they went before to actually kiss him, and instead of kissing him, they spit in his face. And then, because he would not hold the staff in his hand, they took that staff and they began to strike his head time and time again with that staff, continuing to spit upon him, continuing to pull out his beard, continuing to treat him like a nobody, bowing before him, acting as if they were worshiping him, but continuing to treat him irrespectively. The trial, you remember, had begun there before Annas, and Annas had one of his servants strike Jesus on the face for speaking without respecting the chief priest. And it would not end until they nail him to the cross. We must remember that his heavenly father allowed Christ to be treated in this manner. Per permitted these evil devils to dishonor the son of God in this way. Because that is what we deserve. For your sake and my sake, he endured all of this. We caused his beating. We caused his condemnation. We caused his mockery. We caused him to be ridiculed. We caused him to be spit upon. We caused his pain. We caused his suffering. All of this was done so that we might have salvation. If you do not see his infinite love, in this passage, then you do not have spiritual eyes. To treat the God-man in this way is doubly horrible. But have you thought about this? That he who is the maker 
of the universe. In him, all of these soldiers who were treating him in this way, they lived and they moved and they had their being by him who created all things. In their very life, their very life was in his hands. He was hiding his identity from them. They would have never killed him if in fact, he had revealed who he really was. He provided them the strength that they had to even beat him. The wonder of it all was that Jesus Christ chose to stay exactly where he was. He restrained his judgment. He loved his persecuting neighbors as himself to where the point he even cries there on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did all of this to fulfill your righteousness and my righteousness. He wore that dirty purple robe that I might wear a robe of righteousness. He shed his blood so that I might be cleansed from all of my sins. I cannot understand how anyone could not love the man of sorrow who bore a crown of thorns in our stead so that we might wear a crown of righteousness. Why? Are you not drawn to such a Savior? Why would you still love your sin when sin brought all this upon Him? Why are you ashamed to say that you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, when He was not ashamed to be dressed like a clown for you? Have men ever spit upon you? They spit upon him when he stood in your place. John Huss, the great morning star of the Reformation, he was charged with heresy and burned at the stake. They put a crown, a paper crown, on his head that had a cruel devilish painting on it. John Huss saw it and he said, the Lord Jesus my, for my sake wore a crown of thorns. Why shouldn't I for his sake wear this light crown? I'll do it willingly. What about you? Cynicism, cynicism about Jesus Christ was all too common in that day. And it's too common in our day. Such blasphemy is revealed how wicked men in our day continue to mock our Savior, 
I could speak of many examples, but I will not go down that path. But we see that Christianity continues to be mocked by pagans today. Liberals continue to mock Christianity. But no Christian has ever suffered greater attack than what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, suffered. Jesus allowed this to happen in order that everyone who comes to faith in Him might be delivered from the pit of destruction and the torment of hell. The glorious God, the holy God, led Himself to be spit upon. Let His head be hit with a rod, that sinners might be set free, that we might be presented to our Heavenly Father as flawless with exceeding joy. Do you see things as they are here in this passage? I'm speaking to every single person here this morning. Do you know that you have met this Lord that I am speaking of. All of us must meet Him one day. We all have that great appointment when we will stand before Him. My question is, what have you done with Jesus who suffered in all of these ways? Does this mean anything to you? How will you respond to Him? Will you continue to ignore Him and all that He did? Will you continue to go down the path of destruction and sin? Or will you bow before Him in repentance? Will you come and will you take your stand with Him? Or will you continue to ignore Him? It's my desire and my prayer that you will come to Him. Come to Him who is able to save you. Come to Him who is able to give you grace and mercy. If by the mercy of the Lord you have been saved, if you have received a new heart, then one great mark of this is that you will turn your back upon all that glitters in this world. You will turn your back upon all the pleasures of this world. You will not seek to find comfort and joy in this world. You will seek to find your comfort and joy in Christ and Christ alone. Have you experienced that joy? Have you experienced that comfort? Are you satisfied with Christ? He suffered all of this so that you might be satisfied. You will find your deepest desire in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave Himself for you. One thing that you must seek daily is grace to continue in Christ daily to walk in the spirit daily draw nearer and nearer to him clinging to him that's what T.C.T. Studd said when he said if Christ be God and died for me then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him did you hear that? If you understand that Christ be God and Christ died for you, then no sacrifice can be too great for you to give to Him. I live for Him who died for me, the hymn says. 
Do you understand what the Bible is saying? God demands that the soul that sins should surely die. He who is a sin-hating God requires a life. A sacrificial lamb to atone for sin and guilt. God provided that lamb. His only begotten son who shed his blood to atone for man's sin. It was God who was bruised and he put him to shame so that we might not be put to shame. The strokes fell on him that should have fallen on you and me. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He is our substitute so that we might be spared the second death, so that we might be spared the judgment of God. That is the message of the cross. Substitution. We should have been beaten. We should have been spat upon. We should have been mocked. We should have been whipped. We should have been crucified for our sins. But He took our place there at Calvary. As John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Horatio Barner writes, I see the scourges tear, tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of the crowd who smite and mocked, I feel that I am one. Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avail to cleanse away my sin, and not the least that cross prevails to give me peace within. God, in the fullness of time, offered his son as the perfect sacrifice. What love do you really understand? God's love, a love that had to punish sin due to his hatred for sin so that we might be saved. A love that did not spare his only begotten son, his love that absorbed the wrath that it demanded rather than destroying all sinners in the eternal hell. That's why we sing amazing grace or amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die? 1 John 4, 9. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Jesus Christ took the sword of God's wrath upon himself so that our second death would be annihilated. Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. 
He pleased God by being perfect and he paid our death at Calvary. And until you come to see this, you will continue to carry your own guilt, continue to carry your own sin, and you will continue under the wrath of God. Jesus said to his disciples, after his resurrection, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, all not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into glory. If you do not see the horror of your sin, then you will never repent of it. I pray that God would open your eyes so that you will see the horror of your sin and cry out to God and let Him deal with it. Look to Christ, trust in Christ alone, for He alone is able to justify you, to make you acceptable in the sight of His heavenly Father. Why? Why would you leave this day rejecting Christ again? one who has showed his love in such an awesome way, why would you walk out these doors continuing to reject his great salvation? May it be not so. May you run to Christ this day in true repentance and faith. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, Grace so amazing, so full and free. Grace that abounds and covers all of our sins. Oh, we thank you for such a great and glorious salvation. Give us the ability to grasp these truths. How we pray, Father, that your spirit would drive these truths into the hearts of those that do not know you. How we pray that today would be the day of salvation. To where sinners would turn from their wicked sins and look to Christ for redemption and justification. May it be so. And may we as Christians be faithful to proclaim this message to those that we come in contact with, faithful to press the gospel upon those that you bring into our path so that they might come to know this great and glorious Savior as you have allowed us to. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand with me again and take your hymn book and turn to hymn 197. Hymn 197, Rejoice the Lord is King. <laughs>